The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, good morning. Mm. So this morning I'd like to uh, say a few words about the topic of joy. Joy, delight, um, happiness, genuine well-being. Um, I think most of us would like to have more joy. This, this, you know, this, this idea that um, also there's some connection between um, joy and meditation, joy and mindfulness. And so just to unpack a little bit what that might be, you know, how, what's the role of joy on the, on the, the meditative path? What's... Um, you know, what's some understanding of joy from the Dharma perspective? And, um, yeah, you know, how might this, how might this all fit together? Um, one of the things I was thinking about um, was a, a story that was on NPR about maybe a month ago. I don't know, some of you might have heard it. And it was about a rabbi, I think it was a rabbi, who was in um, Canada, and he had, um, in his 50s, so, you know, relatively uh, young, and he had suffered quite a debilitating stroke. And and one of the things about this stroke was that it um, left him sort of locked in sort of paralyzed in the, in the sense that he couldn't, um, not only couldn't, he couldn't physically, I think the only thing he could move was his eyelids and he could blink. And so, you know, so this is quite an extreme condition. And of course his family was very upset and, and, um, And so his daughter was telling the story of how, um, and, and just to back up and say a few words about this person, he was known for being um, not only a very joyful person, but sort of a mystic in a way, sort of um, a poet, um, that he spoke in kind of beautiful, lush imagery and, and just had this spiritual feeling um, and which which kind of drew people to him. Um, so his daughter told told the story of how she went in to see him, and she was very upset. And you know, this very vibrant, you know, um, charismatic, joyful father, kind of you know just just. Um, you know, just there, barely, barely alive, it seemed. And, and so he could, you know, he was, he had awareness and he could perceive that she was very upset. 
and he began, he was looking at her, and then she had the idea to recite the letters of the alphabet. So she starts saying A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K. And then he blinks. You know, and you can kind of see, you know, so painstakingly, uh, through blinking, she works out a message that he's trying to say. And, her, and the daughter's name is, was Kitra. And so what he says in his first message or his first communication after the stroke is, Kitra, don't cry for me. This is a blessing. No, don't cry for me. This is a blessing. And, you know, and the story goes on and that he's able to, you know, like 15 hours he works out a sermon or something for his, for his, his congregation. And he, over time, over these past four or five years, he's been able to recover more and more of his um, abilities. But one of the things that his daughter stressed in this interview was that it was not so much that this terrible thing happened to him and he reframed it. You know, he kind of changed his perspective and was able to flip this bad thing around into a good thing. There's, there's a role for that and, that, and, and that's not to diminish that, but what she was saying was that this was who he is. This was his, his way of being in the world was such that um, he was so fully inhabiting his life that each and everything, each and every moment was it. You know, not, not comparing his life to the way it could be or should be or somebody else's life, but he was so here, so present, so living in this, inhabiting uh, this in some way that, that it wasn't that he had to do mental acrobatics to, to make this good. It was not this is this is life. This is it. This is, you know, as long as there is some um, life force left in him. You know, he said something at the end of the interview like, this, I have so much more to do, you know, in, in this life. And, you know, in this broken world, there is holy work to do. And so... So, you know, this is an ext- you know, somewhat of an extreme example, but it's like, you know, so, okay, so that's one example. And then in, in a more maybe everyday, ordinary sense, we, you know, um, we know that it's possible to, in a maybe external or outward way, have all the conditions or many of the conditions in place for happiness, for joy, for well-being. We have health or um, financial security or loving relationships or high status or, you know, physical comforts. Um, And it's possible to have all of these things and be absolutely miserable. 
you know. <laughs> you know, this is, you know, we, we see this in ourselves. We see this in, um, in others. And in the same way, it's possible to have a life that has, from, from an outward perspective, many difficulties, much suffering, much, um, you know, You know, we know people who live in a way with chronic pain or with, you know, you can think of all the different, um, I don't know if you saw this, there was in the, the newspaper this weekend, it was in the, I think it was in the Sunday Times, about a woman who is a grief counselor. And what brought her to being a grief counselor was that um, her, her partner, her boyfriend, uh, killed himself when she was in her 20s and then uh, both of her parents died in a plane crash which she saw she's at the airport waiting to pick them up and she's when she was in her 30s and then she was widowed at quite a young age um, you know and her husband uh, had a heart attack in her early 40s and so she has this immense loss, amount of loss in her life and, um, and somehow has found her way through and counsels others and, um, you know, so, so, you know, so, so there's something, there's maybe there's something that we know or that we can intuit that, um, there's some kind of happiness, some kind of well-being or some kind of joy that doesn't depend on conditions, lining up conditions to be just right. And, you know, in a way, I, I think that maybe that's the message in the culture, or maybe that's just a human thing of trying to get to that sweet spot where everything is just, you know, things are just right, the career is just sort of humming along, and everything's, parents are okay, and kids are okay, and you can kind of, you know, and and um, not to diminish that in a way, because there's a certain wisdom and a skill in taking care of conditions of life, conditions of the world. Yes, you know, we try to be healthy, and yes, we try to, you know, um, don't forget your social security number and pay your credit card bills and, you know, you know whatever it is that's going to um, make our life work better. You know, so there's a certain place for that. Um, but maybe one of the premises of um, meditation practice or spiritual practice is that there's a kind of happiness or a kind of joy that doesn't depend on all the conditions being just right or being good enough or being okay. Um, so even if we don't articulate it to ourselves in this way, I think that there is a maybe there's a default mode for, for many of us, which is um, 
to try to get what I want and get away from what I don't want. You know, I mean, this is just so, this is so basic. Um, and some of you might be familiar with this teaching and kind of the Buddhist um, psychology of mind, which talks about that each moment of life has a dimension that is either pleasant or unpleasant, or neither unpleasant or unpleasant. So it's, you know, it's one of the ways of slicing up experience of pleasant, unpleasant. And this is another, you know, we may not think about it in those words, but there's a way of going through life where we think if I can only maximize, increase the number of pleasant moments and just dial down the unpleasant moments, if not to zero, to like point oh 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 one, you know, whatever we can, <laughs> you know, then we'll have it, then we'll X, you know, whatever it is, then we'll be happy, then we'll be okay. There we are. One of the ways that this is understood to be a frustrating and somewhat futile endeavor <laughs> is, you know, just very simply with the teaching of impermanence. You know, if you, I think we've had, we, we know this experience of anticipating something that we think will be very pleasant. And there may be moments of, of intense pleasure associated with it. But if, if we hold on to them, if we try to extend them in time and keep them and quite quickly, what was pleasant becomes unpleasant. You know, I mean, it's just like, if you just think of the most comfortable chair that you could imagine or the, you know, and you just finally sit in it and, you know, or like a first class seat on an airplane or, you know, whatever, you, just, you sit in it, and it's oh, okay, you know, that's nice, that's comfortable. But if you just stay in that position, you know, okay, so maybe it's comfortable for 10 minutes, maybe it's comfortable for a nap, maybe it's comfortable for an hour, but there's a certain point of staying in the position, not moving, where that very comfortable chair is going to become uncomfortable. You know, or that delicious bite of chocolate cake, you know, you know okay, maybe, maybe even a, a slice, maybe two slices, but can you really eat 10 or 10 cakes or something? You know, at a certain point, it's, you know, it's that, that taste, the very same taste, will be experienced as intensive, intensely unpleasant. It was intensely pleasant, then it becomes intensely unpleasant. You know, so, so we know from, from life that um, if we just reflect on it, that the, the pleasure, the, uh, the, uh, the unpleasantness, the joy, maybe doesn't reside in the... Ex- in the condition itself, in the contents of the experience. You know, it's not in the cake, <laughs> right? You know, it's like nothing inherent about the cake. It's in us. It's, it's in how we experience it. There's, you know, so if it's experienced in one way, it's like this. If it's another way, it's like this. So, um, you know, so conditions are impermanent, conditions are changing. And if our happiness, if our well-being is based on changing conditions, then it's a very brittle happiness. Um, 
I know this from periods of my own life where there could be intense joy, intense happiness, something's well, or even something beautiful, the birth of a child, or, you know, you know, some, you know beautiful um, moments in life. But there's, a, with those moments, there can also be this voice, or this, just this, this understanding of, you know, this is going to change. You know, it's not always going to be like that. <laughs> you know, and, and, and so in a way that can make that happiness somewhat brittle if we try to hold on to it, you know. So I want to talk about that, of how to, how to enjoy wonderful, beautiful conditions. And, you know, and yes, they're a part of life. And yes, they bring joy, they bring happiness. But maybe it's, it's when we grasp, when we try to keep them, when, we're, when there's a fear of defending them. And that's what, in a way, um, makes them brittle. Um, so, th- so this question of what might uh, provide a more sustainable happiness, a more robust happiness, a, a sort of joy, a sense of inner well-being that, that doesn't depend on um, something outside of us. You know, and this is, this is um, maybe, maybe this was part of the Buddha's uh, question or quest. Um, And then, so, so having said all of that, um, what I would like to propose or maybe just, you know, just suggest, and this is something really to explore in our own um, meditation practice, our own life, but this paradox of practice where rather than trying to get things to be just right, maybe the request of practice is to in, in some radical way, leave everything alone. Or leave everything just as it is. And there's something about mindfulness practice that is not about fixing or improving or um, getting more focused, getting more calm, getting even more joy, getting more peace. Those are all good things, and those may be things that come out of practice that, that are sort of the natural byproducts of practice. But the practice itself, maybe, is more about seeing the way things actually are, and the way we are right now in this moment, this, this quality of seeing it, of being with it, um, without that impulse to fix, without that impulse to change or to improve. Um, you know, so, so rather than reorganizing our life and to improving it, um, we find a way to enter it just as it is, exactly as it is. Um, So rather than fighting, resisting, demanding, um, 
you know, some kind of qualities of acceptance, embracing, um, and, and if you can see in a way, this doesn't really change anything. And people who've practiced for, for I mean, I remember I, I tell this story sometimes, but I was, um, I was at San Francisco Zen Center sitting on the front steps and just sort of enjoying the morning. And there was another person sitting on the front steps who was uh, a Zen priest who was in his 90s. Maybe Lou was, I don't know, 92, 93. And Lou was the sort of person that, you know, after he turned 90, people would kind of say, oh, yeah, Lou's getting old. You know, sort of this vibrant... Um, he would take a city bus out to sort of randomly to different parts of San Francisco and then walk home, find his way home. And all the while he'd be working on some questions, some, some puzzle in his mind. And just a, just a wonderful person, very interesting. And I asked him, what did I ask him? I asked him about a mutual friend of ours who is a Zen teacher who is in his late 80s now. And I said to him, because I knew Lou had known Mel for many years, you know, 40 or 50 years. So I said to Lou, I said, what was Mel like when you, when you knew, when you first met him in the 50s or the 60s? And he looked at me, he said, Mel was exactly the same. He said, people don't change. <laughs> and I, <laughs> um, Mel, Mel is a teacher and a person who has a reputation for being very relaxed, very um, at ease, joyful in a certain kind of way, sort of mellow, sort of... He has if nothing you could say to Mel would shock him or would... Um, destabilize him. He's stable. He's balanced. He's, uh, and so it was very interesting to me to hear that from Lou. It was like, oh, you know. Um, so, so does this practice change us? Does this practice change our life? Or does it somehow make us more who we are? Or make us more... Um, at ease, at peace with who we are, with how our life is. And something in that ease, something in that peace is the key that unlocks the practice and unlocks the joy. So, so in a way, what this is proposing is that, you know, as we often say here, it's not so much about the particular contents of our experience, but more in the relationship, how we relate to what's happening, how we relate. There's a way of relating to what's happening that locks in suffering, that creates more suffering, that creates more grasping after something, pushing it away, um, wanting something different from how it is. Um, and we, you know, we can see in, in a one minute of meditation, we can see you know, are we here? Are we present? Or is something not quite right? Is it, you know, is it quite, quite, is someone rustling too much? Or is there, or is there a little bit of, you know, 
do we want do we want to be more calm or do we want the mind to quiet down or do we want you know how do we want things to be different from how they are so meditation is this this wonderful laboratory for just to see these movements of mind you know we grasp and we push it away and um so so something about this relationship um So we say, so, so, so if practice is about maybe, in a way, taking care of the relationship to what's happening, more so than any of the particulars. Um, what, one of my meditation teachers has a, has a saying, it does, it's a little bit of an awkward grammar, he says, it doesn't matter. He says something like, it doesn't matter to what we don't cling. And this is a little, <laughs> you know, if, if the movement of practice is about letting go, if the movement of practice is about not clinging, then in some way, this is where we place our emphasis. And letting go of um, you know, letting go of something little, something maybe that would seem trivial, or letting go of something big and you know some 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 pattern or some deep pattern or some uh, uh, or some big form of of attachment or suffering in our life. The movement is the same. The movement of letting go is the same. So. Um, we practice letting go of the small things. And anyway, so that's a, that's a little bit of a tangent. So uh, the way, maybe, the way to enter into this approach is, is through mindfulness, is through, is through this simple seeing. Um, seeing what's there without trying to change it, without trying to fix it. And... All that being said, mindfulness itself, what we might discover is mindfulness itself has its own magic. That a mind that is not caught, that's not entangled, that's not, you know, you're sitting, that's not daydreaming, that's not caught, that's not reliving some difficult experience or conversation or pining away for some other life or experience, a mind that's not caught is a mind that can see beauty. A mind that's not caught is a mind that can appreciate um, the good in other people. A mind that's not caught is, um, you know, maybe can relish the, the, the simple pleasures of being alive in a way that, you know, we miss. We miss so much when we're when we're living only in a mental universe, when we're living only, um, when our experience of our life is mediated through uh, our thinking and through um, our emotions. Um, and it, which is not to say that thinking and emotions, that there's anything wrong with them. 
but how do we relate to them? You know, do we believe every thought that we have? You know, or, or do we have this skill, this wisdom, which comes with mindfulness to say, oh, okay, that's a thought. And then you can kind of, you know, is it skillful? Is it wise? Is it true? Is it, you know, um, so mindfulness can, in a way gives us the space to have some choice um, and some choice about how we relate to what's happening. Um, mindfulness is, this is something to kind of, um, you know, check out in your own experience, but mindfulness is said to increase the wholesome and decrease the unwholesome qualities. So um, one of the interesting things about this kind of Dharma joy or um, inner joy that the Buddha often talks about is it's a joy that's not based on the senses. You know, we think of, often we think about joy, it's about eating a great meal or having being, you know, the joy of, of being, of a physical joy of being touched or the joy of, you know, great taste and smell. So what is it like? What is, what is the kind of joy that comes from, uh, that comes from within, that comes from a heart, that comes from a mind um, that isn't dependent on the senses? Um, one of the ways this joy is said, to, is said to arise is through cultivating wholesome qualities, beautiful qualities, inclining the mind towards um, generosity, towards integrity, towards kindness, towards compassion. Um, this is one of the ways that joy comes about. Um, another way that this joy is said to come about is through when the mind... Um, when there's a unification of the mind, I mean, um, I think we've all had the experience of being so absorbed and so immersed in um, an activity that we love, you know, whether if you, if you like to make art and you're just, you're in the process of creating or you're singing or you're dancing or you're, um, you know, um, some activity, some if, if you like to run or if you kind of, you know, that there's no gap between you and the activity. That tends to bring up a lot of joy, a lot of, a lot of enjoyment, a lot of well-being. Um, why? Um, one... one one reason, and this is something to check out, is that when we're absorbed and when we're immersed in something we love and something we're wholeheartedly in, there's less, in a way, there's actually less self-operating. There's less self-consciousness. There's less self-involvement. There's less self-referential thoughts. How do I look? How am I doing? You know, we're just so in it. We're just enjoying it. Um, if you look at children, 
you know, there's all, before, before they're taught or before they're sort of in a, um, I don't know, my kids are, are young enough that they're still in that, you know, that they can just play for hours and, or just have, relate to people with, with no self-consciousness, no, you know, just pure love or pure <laughs> um, anger or, you know, whatever it is, you know. Um, I, I don't want to fetishize that. And, you know, so we, all, we just kind of go through life, just we, there's no room for thinking, there's no room for reflection. We're just, you know, we're just enjoying one activity and the other and then the other. Uh, I, joy, like everything else, comes and goes. You know, it's conditioned, it's impermanent. But um, one of the um, you know, it's helpful to see it as a skill in a way and to see, ju- and, to, and, to, and to know for ourselves what, what feeds joy and happiness and what, what diminishes it, what takes it away. You know, so, so in, in the tradition, what's said to feed joy is, you know, these wholesome qualities of mind, um, Unification of mind, concentration, stillness are, are, are some of the conditions. Um, not only does, does concentration bring about joy, but joy and well-being is the pre, sort of the prerequisite to, to the deeper stages of concentration and stillness. So it's a very, very important aspect of the Buddhist path, of the Dharma path. Um, one of the, just to say a few more things, one of the interesting things we may discover is that, and just to see if this is true for you in your experience, is that it takes more work, it takes more mental energy and more effort to be unhappy, maybe, to be unhappy than it does to be happy. You know, in this way, unhappiness from the Dharma point of view, comes from clinging, comes from holding on, some, some kind of grasping in the mind. And in the same way that to hold a fist, you know, it takes work. There's a, there's a sort of, we have to, the natural movement is to let go. We have to keep remembering to stay clenched. Just so kind of in a way that when you're angry with someone, you have to keep remembering, you're just gonna feed it with, you know, yeah, 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 that happened. Um, so part of the, the suggestion of the Buddha's teaching is that joy is, an, is a natural state. Joy, well-being, peace is what happens, what naturally bubbles up when we're not creating our own unhappiness. And so in a way, it's, you know, like many things in the practice, the way to join happiness is to become really interested in all the ways that we make ourselves unhappy. All the ways, all the movements of mind that we get caught, we get entangled, we think the grass is greener in some form or another. And not to judge ourselves for that, not to, but just to study it, to become familiar with it. 
Um, and so, let, and so, um, and the other big value for joy on the path is that when we become familiar and more intimate with the ways that joy can bubble up and nourish the being, um, that, that kind of nourishment becomes a source of inner strength, inner resource, inner well-being that makes it easier to let go of what needs to be let go of. You know, it's like, kind of like, what I think we talked about this last week in the talk on tranquility, but if I feel um, an inner sense of scarcity, an inner sense of lack, an inner sense of not having enough, it's very difficult to be generous. It's difficult to be generous with my time when I feel very pressed and feel very busy. It's, it's difficult to be generous with my um, money if I feel like I don't have enough. If, you know, it's just, it's just, when we feel like we have vast inner resources, inner sense of well-being, of joy that doesn't depend on what other people think of me, what, uh, how much money I have in the bank, or what, uh, you know, um, how, how everything is going externally. When we feel an inner resource, it's easier to give. It's easier to... Um, let go of what needs to be let go of. So in a way, this is su- it's such an important part of this uh, Dharma journey. And um, sometimes you see kind of meditators, you know, really gritting our teeth and bearing down and I'm gonna really get it and really get concentrated, and something, you know, and it's like, that might work a little bit, <laughs> but basically it, that is a recipe uh, for burnout. It, and so, so and maybe some of us need to go through that in the same way that some of us need to spend a number of years trying to get everything just right, you know, before we kind of realize, oh, it's not. Maybe it's not so much about that, or it doesn't depend on that. Um, and in the story of the Buddha's journey and the Buddha's awakening, that is, you know, he, as the story goes, you know, the, lit, the myth, the legend, whatever, he went through the most extreme austerity, starving himself, you know, uh, wandering, um, ascetic practice, very, very difficult ascetic practices, before at some point having the memory of being a child, being a child sitting under a tree and having this sense of joy that was so um, that was so natural, was so effortless, that didn't depend on anything. Um, and he was like, oh, that that there's something about that that was pointing the way that that was a giving up the trying the striving the rejecting um, and when he could return to that and 
um, that way of being just with how things were, that unlocked his meditation. And that was what allowed him to um, open his eyes, look up at the, the star and say, that's me, that's me. You know, that was um, just in the way that the star is fully itself, is fully twinkling, is not, um, you know, is, in each moment we're twinkling. <laughs> you know, in each moment we are expressing who and what we are. And it's not that some of those moments are better than others. It's that it's all us. It's all been, ha- you know, it's always been. We've always been it. We've always been twinkling. But um, it turns out that that is uh, not so easy to see. Um, So I wish each of you, each of us, um, much joy and um, you know, and to and to somehow find find that way that. Um, doesn't matter so much how things go. You know, if it, once someone has been meditating for, you know, a few years, a number of years, they sort of, you sort of have this feeling that it doesn't really matter what happens during the meditation, you know, but it's really more about how much presence, how much can I bring to, 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 to each moment? Um, how can I be with whatever happens? And, and, and we, because we know that the joy comes from that. It comes from um, that willingness to be, you know, to just simply be who and what we are moment after moment after moment. Um, so, does anyone have any questions, disagreements, thoughts, experiences you want to share? Um, what do you think of this? Does it, uh, does it resonate? Does it, or not, with your experience? So through much of your talk, I kept asking myself uh, how would I reconcile some desire for compassion with this desire not, not to wish things were other than they are. 
because as I understand compassion, not very deeply, but I understand compassion as recognizing suffering in myself or others and creating an intention to relieve that suffering. And that would seem to suggest that I would be seeking to change something as it is at the moment. You stumped me. No, <laughs> no it's a great it's a great question. And it's um I too think of compassion in, in a as I mean I guess may the way that I understand compassion in my own experience and the kind of maybe a little bit from the teachings is kind of what you said, the heart's natural response to suffering, you know. And so um, when, when our heart is open and when we're meeting experience as it is, when we're meeting suffering, one of the things that will arise at times naturally is compassion and um, and it's beautiful and it's a beautiful quality um, it's one of the qualities that the Buddha um, taught to cultivate so um, I think maybe maybe the the wider question might be or one of the questions might be how to hold any kind of spiritual aspiration, you know, to have more compassion, to have less suffering, to have uh, more ease, more peace, how to hold that aspiration and how to practice with it. Because there's a way of, um, I mean, the way I think, I'll tell you the way I think about it for myself is to, um, make a little bit of a distinction between holding aspirations um, which, I th- which are beautiful, which are important, and they're so important in setting the direction of practice. And to hold an aspiration like to have more compassion. And then the actual practice of, say, in a sitting, for me at least, I find it helpful to almost consciously let go of everything including even aspirations, however beautiful, however important. It's like, because there can be a way that an aspiration is like a thought that is, it's a good, it's, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. But at a certain moment in practice, even that thought can be experienced as extra, as something extra. Not that it's bad, not that it's wrong, but even it's like, okay, you know, you kind of start to see that there's, even in that kind of refined thinking, there's a sort of movement of mind or agitation of mind. You know, can, can it be even more simply with experience? And so that naturally may, may fall away, and, which is fine. And it may come back and it's fine. And it's like, you know, thoughts will come up anyway in meditation. They're always going to come up. So why not have beautiful thoughts, good thoughts? You know, it's a great thing. Um, and j- but just to have that um, sensitivity to know when it's helpful. When is it like I'm grumbling about something that happened and, you know, some compassion would be really 
helpful right now, or I'm being really hard on myself in kind of speaking to myself in an inner voice that's that's judgmental and that and that's that's you know. So you no, know, bring in some compassion, bring in some self-compassion. That can be very very skillful. So not a, not at all to. Um, say never to do that, but just to be sensitive as to when, and then when is that something that can also just be let go of and you can enter even more, absorb more fully just into uh, the simple experience of the moment without any mediation of thinking. So I don't know if that helps, but I think there's a place for it. I do think there's a place for it. One more? You want to take the mic and just... So, um, you mentioned something about um, having compassion for thoughts when your use of thoughts will be coming by. And, um, and I have a hard time, when I see the thoughts coming by, I have a hard time getting like really, I shouldn't be thinking, like shame on me for thinking this is terrible, you know, bad me, and I get really down on that. <laughs> um, you have those thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, I... Um, would, would you, and then you said something about compassion. So, is there a way to use compassion to kind of reverse that kind of pattern that I've created? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, just just briefly to say that what you what you describe is very common. It's very, you know, especially as meditators, you can somehow have the sense of like thinking is bad or thinking is wrong or something. And, but actually, um, like I talked about with the relationship, maybe the request of meditation practice is not to not have any thoughts, but is to come to a peaceful relationship with our thinking, come to a friendly relationship with our thinking. Is there a way that, you know, so, so, so maybe for you it's more about befriending our thoughts than, you know, we're, um, it's easy to think that we, we become kind of sharpshooters, you know, a thought comes up, just, just you know, kind of, there's another one, and just, you know, just, just, just knock them out of the sky as soon as they come. Um, that doesn't, in my experience, it doesn't really work that well. And it also fosters a kind of aversion or a kind of which is, which is sort of the opposite direction that we're going. So I find it helpful to think of thoughts just the way the pancreas secretes insulin and the um, my lack of biological you know, the thyroid secretes thyroid hormone, the brain or whatever, the thinking organ secretes thoughts. It's like, you know, it's just a natural secretion. (laughs) And just the way we don't, you know, 
we're, we're, not, we're not yelling at our hormones and other things that are secreted. You know, how can we have a skillful, wise, loving relationships, relationship with our thinking? That's really the, the challenge of meditation. We suffer so much because of our thinking, often because we believe the thoughts. And then or if we believe we shouldn't be having thoughts, that's another way of suffering. So, you know, how can we... So, so in a way, this, this suggestion of practicing in a way of just looking but not changing anything. When someone starts practicing in this way, they often find that there's a lot more thinking. And then you slowly learn how to not feed the thinking. So it's like, you know, thoughts will come up. Oh, what am I going to have for dinner? Oh. And there's a way of sort of leaning into it and just feeding it. And, uh, and there's a way of seeing it. Oh, okay, thinking about dinner. Let it go. Something else comes. So to come into a really peaceful, loving, kind relationships with the thoughts is, is really um, important. And I'll just say one way of, of doing that is, especially when there are difficult thoughts or self-judgmental thoughts or something like that, is to have the recognition that those thoughts are in, in, in a way, maybe in a misguided way, an attempt to help us. It's, it's our own way of soothing ourselves, helping ourselves, that may have been helpful at a certain point, you know, um, that may have lost its usefulness. So it's quite, almost in a way you can bow to the thinking and say, you know, okay, thank you for trying to, you know, thank you for trying to take care of me. That's a way of, um, you know, I'm trying to think of a good example. You kind of know what I'm, I mean. In, um, that it's like, uh, it's trying to defend us, protect us, or understand something. You know, it's a way of understanding. And to just acknowledge that the root of it is something good. It's trying to help us. And then you say, you know, thank you. I don't, we don't need you anymore. We don't need this anymore. Um, sometimes that can be helpful. And the other big way that, that um, when working with thoughts often repetitive thoughts are fueled by an emotion. So if you can sense into what the emotion is, so if I'm thinking about the future all the time, often if we, if we get sensitive, we can see that that is something that's fueled by fear. You know, and, and, it's, and it's much more helpful in the meditation to sort of tune into the fear that's driving that and say, oh, oh, that's interesting. That's fear of, Whatever, the unknown, a fear of not having enough, fear of what could happen, fear of becoming a parent. So there's a whole new range of fears that have kind of, you know, it's like, okay, you know, there's, there's, that, there's that. And then when you notice what the emotion might be, um, finding it in the body. So we're just, it's just getting closer and closer and closer to our experience. So rather than just being in these thoughts of, well, oh my God, well, that could happen. Uh, we're like, we're noticing the this, this butterflies in the stomach that actually we were so removed from. And actually the thinking was serving to sort of protect us from feeling that. So then you're kind of going, we're just sort of following the thread back. So that's another way. Um, thank you. Okay, so thank you very much. Uh,